uh, if you came prepared to give today, friends, be sure that uh, you do so. We uh, do this together. You can do that just by texting it in. I think it's on screen. Uh, and if you haven't already, grab a feedback card and fill out your feedback card as well. You can either do it on paper, if that's your thing, or do it digitally. It's in your digital program, and that really helps us as we pray for you. Uh, we will gather, in fact, this Tuesday night to pray for you, and would love, love, love to know exactly how we can do that. So take advantage. Uh, hey, I want to pick back up kind of where we left off last week. Uh, uh, to some extent, we, we dove into Psalm 139 last week and uncovered a few myths that block our own spiritual transformation, that at times contend for our attention, leading us away from the presence of God. And we jumped ahead for the sake of time last week, and I'd like to come back to one of those myths. And I'd, I'd like to just from the outset kind of let you know where we're headed, because it may get a, a little bit of a circuitous route to get there. So let me just tell you ahead of time, for those who are linear, this may, this may serve you. I, I want to suggest to us today that part of the fuel that will lead us to greater depths of spiritual transformation is an incomposed to us today that our spiritual transformation may even hinge to some degree on our own ability to stand in awe and wonder of who God is. Well, we come back to Psalm 139. And as we look at Psalm 139, we're going to see David himself uncover another one of these myths that we sometimes live with in our life with God. Turn with me there. If you haven't already, Psalm 139, we're going to begin in verse 17. This is a Psalm of King David, him writing Sorry, I'm, I'm losing my spot here. Writing to, really to God in prayer. There we go. I finally got it. And we pick up midway through this sort of poem he writes unto the Lord. He says in verse 17, How precious are your thoughts about me, O God. They cannot be numbered. I can't even count them. They outnumber the grains of sand, and when I wake up, you are still with me. Uh, the passage begins with how precious are your thoughts about me, O God. Now, I don't know about you, but that is not a word that is in my normal vernacular. My, my two, I have two daughters, uh, four kids, two daughters, and as my daughters got older, I think I used the word precious a lot less often. And, and yet this is a king of Israel who's using this language about how God sees him. And I, and I get that it'll never be a straight line and I, I could never illustrate it fully and no analogy will perfectly describe it. But I think of the word precious and I think of my two little girls when their two front teeth were missing. Just that smell of a little girl's hair that they're in some weird ruffly dress that's actually a costume that they're wearing like a, like a real outfit, you know. Precious. It's just precious, like many of your kids, precious. How precious are your thoughts about me? If we get nothing else today, 
May that sink into our very souls, that you are precious to God. You, you could never number the thoughts he has about you. There's many as the grains of sand on the ocean. And that when you wake, he's there with you. Every time you wake, he's with you. Pray with me if you would. Lord Jesus, by the power of the cross, because of your resurrection and your ascension to the right hand of the Father, may we interact, may we engage, may we experience a bit of your presence this day. We know that we have already. We welcome that. May we sense how precious we are to you. And may that not just make us feel warm and fuzzy, though that's wonderful. May it also catalyze us for transformation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The myth here that's at play, I think, so often in our lives with God is the thought that God's thoughts about me are negative, or at least in really short supply. This is kind of the myth that we walk with so much of our life, that somewhere out there, you know, I don't want to break into a Broadway song, but, you know, somewhere out there is this God of the universe, and that when he thinks about me, it must not all be good. It must be, in fact, mostly negative. When, when he looks at me, gosh, if he's God, then he sees all my sin, all my shortcomings, all my insecurities, all my anger, all my blah, 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 all my stuff, all my gluttony, all my jealousy, all my stuff. And so, because he's God of the universe, and he sees all of that, his thoughts about me must be negative. And maybe an even better case scenario, if you process that, just maybe he's not thinking about me at all. You know, you've ever ever heard somebody describe God as like the, the giant uh, clock maker in the sky, you know, and he kind of wound up the clock and he built the universe and he built everything and he wound up the clock and then he just left it alone. That the thought that God's not thinking about me at all is better news than he's thinking negatively about me. And this is just a myth. Now, how we make sense of all that in our heads, because we know it's true. Like we, you know, we are full of envy and hatred and jealousy and gluttony and all, you know, all these, we're like, no, that's actually, you have no idea about me, Stu. I go, I, I kind of know a little something because I am you, right? And so it doesn't mean those things aren't in us. It doesn't mean that God is, you know, blind to that. It means that there is something else about who God is in terms of how he sees us. And it may seem like a really, really simple statement in the room right across the hall at this very moment. Uh, our little ones are getting taught that Jesus loves them, that he's pleased with them that he longs to be in relationship with them, right? I mean, this is the core of what we teach kids about who Christ is. And so it may seem like a somewhat elementary idea, but I, I really believe this deserves a deeper dive for us because in 
a deeper dive of how God thinks about you when he thinks about you. We learn a little something about God. I got this picture texted to me yesterday from a friend. Boy, it just could not have come at, at a better time. Uh, and it was early in the morning, and I'm on this text thread, and I, I get this picture. I don't know if you can make it out from the back row, but uh, let me just kind of put it in context. Uh, it wasn't left with my friend, but my friend was out for a morning walk and saw this on a neighbor's kind of sprinkler box there. And the note reads, in case you can't read it, uh, it reads this, exactly. Put your dog's poop in your own trash can. You're on camera. We see you. Now, I want you to just take a moment to just, it's, okay, Dan's laughing, at least. I mean, the absurd, now, if this was one of you, thank you for this wonderful gift you've given me. And you can come to me later and you can tell me I did it just for you, Stu. I knew you would see it and it's all a joke and that'll be just wonderful. And then I can tell the story widely and use your name and it'll be a great laughter. Uh, I was just simply shocked to get it. And I texted my friend back and I said, wait, wait, hold on. Now let me get this straight. You saw this note with the bag of poop next to it. You go, yeah, yeah, that's, that's what happened. And because of the way my goofy mind works, um, I can't, just the way God wired me up, I can't ever wrap my head around something until I can understand how it works. So as a little kid, my dad would tell me, you know, there a spark in the engine lights an explosion inside a car and that makes the car move. Just trust me, son. I, I, sorry, that ain't gonna work for me. You're gonna have to explain to me the whole thing. I, like, I need to understand all, the whole thing. And so my mind begins to unravel this. I have to reverse engineer it. And so I did this for you. This will be your little insight into my flip top head. Um, so I'm just gonna, I'll probably leave out a few steps, but here's kind of the gist of it. Uh, neighbor goes out to their trash can, opens up the lid to either put trash in it I presume that's the only reason you lift your lid, and sees in there a bag of poop and knows, well, that's not my bag of poop. And it occurs to them in that moment, for whatever reason, because it's clearly not taking up too much space, right? Um, it's clearly not going anywhere because it's got a neat little bow tied in it. It's got a knot tied. And so they fish out said bag of poop with something right? And they fish out bag of poop. Now, now, I presume they probably grabbed it with their hand. Now, maybe they went in and they got some tongs or whatever, but, and then that just adds even more layers, which just fascinates me. But let's just assume they grabbed it with their hand, and then they pull it up, and they go, Yahtzee, busted, I got you. And, and then from there, they fish it out, and then they take it somewhere. Where they, I, mean, I don't know if they set it on the, uh, but I would like to envision, because it's my world and it's my story, I'd like to envision that they then took said bag of poop back into their house, and then they sat down at whatever piece of technology they needed to use to review their own uh, camera footage of their, whatever, their ring doorbell or something, right? And so here, I'm just envisioning them on their laptop with the bag of poop in their hand. I'm going to find out who did this. And they, they go through however many hours of footage they had to go through to find the footage of it. And then they find the neighbor. And then they do whatever quick math they had to do. Either they knew, oh, it's Rick, I knew it would be Rick, or by the size of the poop, maybe they narrowed it down. That neighbor has a big dog, this one's small. I don't know how it all worked. But they figure out who it is. 
And then they set the poop down because he had to to get a pen out. And then they craft this note. Now, how many versions of this note they had to craft, I don't know. But it looks to me like it was written quickly. All caps. Exclamation points. And then they go to the neighbor's house and they set it there. And somehow they have vindicated the universe. They have set right all that was wrong in the universe and they have re-leveled the balance of power in the world. Nobody will put poop in my trash can without me knowing about it. And I just texted my friend back and I thought, I wonder if they know they don't own that trash can. Right? I mean, the trash can actually belongs to the trash supply company or whatever. You know, anyway. It's crazy, guys. It's insanity. And the reason we're laughing is because we all do the same stuff. We do the same kind of thing. Now, maybe not this absurd, but we all do this. And, and here's, here's, I share all of that to propose this. That I think we think the same thing about God. I, I think we believe at some level that God is opening the lid of our life and he's rooting around to find a piece of trash. No, no matter how carefully we try to take care of it, no matter, we, I mean, this neighbor carefully scooped up the poo with the bag, put it in the bag, tied a knot on the bag. I mean, really got a lot of things right here. They just got it in the wrong trash can, apparently. And I think we view God in much the same way, as if God is looking for something wrong in us to point out, to remind us how wrong we've been, to remind us it does not matter how much effort you've put in, it doesn't matter what you've gotten right, I am here to remind you, you are not enough. And maybe you've even got some Awana verses bouncing around. Well, I'll fall short of the glory of God. And, yeah, and all, yes, all that is true. But it's such a distorted view of how God sees us. I mean, it, it is half true, right? We do get a lot of things wrong. We are not perfect. And God sees it all. But the good news of the gospel is that God is thinking precious thoughts about us. That he lifts the lid on that trash can and it's overflowing with junk and he thinks precious thoughts about us. He sees the doubts, he sees the angers, he sees the insecurities, he sees the sin, and he thinks precious thoughts. That's my child. I've made you in my image. And the cross, you stand in the shadow of the cross. Paul writes in Colossians 3, Since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven. Where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven not the things of earth, for you died to this life, and this is really, really the key here, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in his glory. For those who prefer the ESV translation, that little snippet of verse three says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Your life is 
unintelligible without seeing Christ. As we have surrendered our lives to the will and way of Jesus, as we have set our dependency upon him, when the Godhead sees us, he sees Christ. You are hidden with Christ in God. So the new reality of who we are in relation to God is monstrous. With the resurrection of Christ, we're, we're no longer just created in God's image. Like, and that, that feels, given my propensity to go back to Genesis 1 in life, I, I think, my goodness, what more could I ever need than the reality and the reminder that I'm made in the image of God? But our Work now is not to go from chapter 4 of Genesis where there is anger and murder and try and get back to Genesis 1 where there's made in the image of God created to be like him. We're not trying to move back to Eden. We are propelled forward into the shadow of the cross. We are found in Christ now. So yes, we bring with us our imago Dei, the image of God. We are made in his image. But now when he sees us, he sees his son, Jesus. This is what he sees. Precious thoughts about us seem a lot easier to manage mentally when we realize that he sees Christ when he sees us. Because we're now living a whole new life. And all the glory that is Christ's is now ours and will be ours. We get this beautiful little insight into this from King David long before the life and teaching, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. Remember what he says, right? How precious your thoughts are about me. They can't be numbered. I cannot count them. They outnumber grains of sand. And when I wake up, you are with me. We see it in the later words of Jesus himself in Matthew 28. Remember, he's, he's resurrected himself and he's giving the disciples their great commission. And he says, you know, go ye therefore in all the world, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And, and what? He says, I am with you. You can be sure of this, he says. I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. I'm with you always. Now, now we have been taught, and, and we know this to be true, that God turns his face from sin. He's holy and he's just. He turns his face from evil. He turns his face from sin. But he now, in Christ, sees Christ when he sees us. We are full in Christ. And he says, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And so this is where uh, the difficulty and the myth comes back for a good number of us, a good amount of the time of our life. And I'd like to spend our remaining few minutes in the trouble with this to some extent, because this is where the doubts creep in. This is where the mental gymnastics creep in. This is where the self-theologizing creeps in. Theologizing creeps in. We'll get that right the second time. And, and, and we see that, you know, the standard answer 
within the church to these sorts of questions for the last at least 30 years, if not maybe 50, has been essentially when those doubts, when that self-theology, when those questions begin to creep in, we just stuff them. You don't ask questions like that, right? You don't, you don't have doubts like that. You know, you just need to what are the saints? Lay it at the foot of the cross, right? Just lay it at the foot of the cross. And for a good number of us, that has been enough. And well, I, I celebrate that if that's been enough for you. It wasn't enough for me. I needed something more from God. And so for many, the, the lack of hearing God's voice for any period of time or the inability to see his hand at work or to experience his presence with us has often led to that. And so we just stuff the questions. We stuff the doubts. And we've talked about the doubts in great detail. Here, we've talked about it in great detail at Sacred Conversations. We'll, we'll dive into it again this Thursday. We, we talk about it in great detail in our spiritual retreats. So I, I, I don't necessarily want to give much time or energy to talking about the doubts today. We have other forums that I think serve us better around disciples for that. But I'd like to talk about what happens when they're left unattended. Because those doubts, those unanswered questions have a way of growing like weeds in our life and choking out anything else that could be fruitful. Jesus talks about this, right? He, he talks about four different soils and seed being spread, weeds choking out the good news of his coming. Not to mention just like the simple practicality that I have yet to meet a doubt that just like magically vanishes on its own. They just don't do that, you know? They just don't disappear. They don't get, doubts don't get tired and just lay down and disappear. So what is the answer? Well, I think at least in part, wouldn't be so bold as to say incomplete, but at least in part, I believe the answer here is to carefully transform our doubts and our questions, not leave them unanswered, not ignore them, but transform them into awe and wonder. I think doubts and questions have a very, very close relative, and that close relative is awe and wonder. I think sometimes our doubts and our questions grow so large in our life and take on such a life of their own that they can and often do become little g-gods all of their own. And they serve as a, a gate that protects us from God. God, you're not allowed into my heart until you deal with this doubt or this question. And I think if we can transform the doubts and questions into awe and wonder, we will be served greatly in our own transformation. Uh, I'm pretty confident that awe and wonder give us the freedom to walk forward in our faith in ways where we don't need all the answers, where we don't need to be certain, where we don't have to have it all figured out. But awe and wonder give us kind of this gift to refocus 
on who God is and how big and vast and unimaginable his presence is and to bask in it. You see, doubts are mirrors that end up only looking at ourselves. Whereas wonder is a window to God. Where doubt tends to be cynical and negative, wonder is hopeful and joyful. Doubts kind of feed on certainty. And the certainty that doubt feeds on is the certainty that I don't know. Bit of a feedback loop there. Wonder is content in confidence. Where doubt can be debilitating to our spiritual life, wonder is liberating. And where doubt will always, almost (laughs) always, shrink our world and our God, wonder gives way to the expansive possibilities that there's a God of the universe who's speaking. You see, awe and wonder does not presuppose all the answers or demand all questions get rectified, but they hold a meeting with God. Wonder holds the meeting. Wonder calls the meeting with God. It says, God, I'm holding space for you now. I'm holding space for the Almighty to speak into this, to whisper in the way that you do, And the good news of the kingdom is that meeting is never over. We've got a few minutes remaining. Jump to John uh, 14, if you would. And I I just want to glance here quickly as we get to the teachings of Jesus himself. I think we get a really nice demonstration of wonder at work in the disciples John chapter 14, very, very famous passage of Scripture, uh, one that has been used in all kinds of powerful and sometimes odd ways, uh, but this is the I am the way, the truth, and the life passage. Jesus is speaking, and he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my Father's home. If this were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. And you know the way to where I am going. You know the way to where I am going. Right on the heels of that, three rapid fire questions from three different disciples. And the first of those is sort of the, no, we actually don't know the way to where you're going, Jesus. Um, What in the world are you talking about? We see it in verse 5 of chapter 14. Thomas, you know, known as Doubting Thomas later on when he demands to see the holes in Jesus' hands and foot. Thomas says, we have no idea where you are going, so how can we know the way? This feels like awe and wonder to me. This this feels like somebody who's leaning in, not leaning out, whereas doubt might tempt us to lean out until we're certain that it's rectified. Wonder leans in and goes, okay, Jesus, I get you're saying that you're going to a place and we're going to know how to get there. We got no idea how to get there. You're going to have to 
explain it a bit more, Jesus. Next is Philip in verse 8. He says, Lord, show us the Father and we'll be satisfied. I, I don't know exactly what Philip's doing here. I, I think it would be easy to jump to maybe some conclusions. I think the text would probably lead us to some, and on a longer day with another hour, we would have a blast exploring what Philip is asking here. But at the very least, Philip is saying, listen, I don't even need to know the way to where you're going. You don't even have to show me the way to San Jose. Just show me the Father. Just give me the Father. That'll suffice for me. And then Jesus goes on and talks quite a bit more at length. And finally, in verse 22, Judas, not Judas Iscariot who would betray him, another Judas, it was a popular name in that time, Bummer to be named the same guy in that troop of 12. Um, I'm sure he got a lot, a lot of questions later on. Wait, I thought you were dead. Um, different Judas. But there are two different ones for those who are new to the text. And he says to Jesus, Lord, why are you going to reveal yourself only to us and not to the world at large? I, I just can't figure out a way, friends, to like, give you a perfect, succinct answer to how this is awe and wonder and not doubt, but it just feels different. This is the way of communicating with an almighty God when you don't have all the answers, but you're leaning in. God, what are you up to? God, what are you doing in all this? And in each of these questions, and one of them being a bit more of a statement than a question, there is sort of the question behind the question, which is the point of all of this. And the question behind the question is, how do we stay in your presence when you're gone, Jesus? They're preparing for Jesus to be gone. And he keeps telling them, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I'm coming back for you, so we will be together for always. And then he, he goes on a little bit longer. He says, you're, you're always going to be with me. And then later, as we looked at earlier in Matthew 28, he says, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. And, and we see this over and over and over again in New Testament text that God is with his people. He is with us. And we, we go, how does that work? And he goes, well, look back at Israel. Look at how God was with Israel. And in the way that he is with Israel, he is with you only he now sees Christ when he sees you. Hallelujah. <laughs> Don't see my golden calf. See my Jesus who has saved me. And the point of all of this is to hold space for the presence of God in all things. To at least, at least with intellectual assent, if that's the best place to begin for you, to say, God, I trust that you are here. Even if I don't see you, even if I don't feel you, even if I don't hear you, even if I don't sense you, I'm going to trust that if you're the God of the universe, that you are here in this moment. And I, and I, I want to think like you, God. I want to say the things you would say, and I want to have compassion like you, God. So God, help me recognize your presence in this moment and how you would move. And I believe to that, God whispers in his very still small voice that Elijah learned of and taught us about. And God says, how precious are my thoughts about you. 
They can't be numbered. I can't even count them. Or you can't count them. They outnumber the grains of sand. For when you wake up, I am with you. This is the voice of God. Would you pray with me? Father, Son, and Spirit. I am as confident of this as I am most anything else. That I cannot transform into the person you've called me and invited me to be and do so outside of your presence. I've just got to be where you are, God. I've got to... I've got to recognize where you're at work in the room and where you're at work in my mind and where you're at work in an emotion and where you're at work in in a moment where I'm tempted to lift the trash can lid and pull the bag out myself and wave it in front of a neighbor's face. God, we want to become the kinds of people who in those moments, the the real cut and thrust of life that we say, God, what are you doing right now? What are are you up to? And what is it in me you long to change? Because I've got to be in your presence for that to change. So take me to your presence, God. And may we hear your voice whisper back to us, even when we wait, even when we question, how precious are my thoughts about you? You could never count them. They're as vast as the sand on the seashore. Your love for us is so great. We pray in Jesus' name.